Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is John Krasnick, the Frederick O. Glover Professor in Humanities and Social Sciences, Professor of Communication, Political Science, and Psychology at Stanford University, where he directs the Political Psychology Research Group. That's right, John has appointments in not one, but three university departments. I'm pleased to note that he is also an RFF University Fellow, and in his spare time, he is a professional jazz drummer in his band, The Charged Particles. But during the day, John is a social psychologist who does research on attitude formation, change, and effects, on the psychology of political behavior, and on survey research methods. He's authored 10 books and more than 210 articles and chapters, in addition to op-ed essays, and he's won several awards for his work in political psychology and survey research methods and public opinion. RFF has worked with John for a number of years on his work related to surveying American public opinion on global warming, and we were thrilled to partner with him and several other key partners again this year. So today's discussion will focus on the overall trends and the findings from the 2020 Climate Insights Survey, but given how rich those findings are, I know we'll leave people wanting more. So once we've whet your appetites, feel free to go to rff.org backslash climate insights to check out our interactive web tool that shows a tremendous number of results in robust detail. Stay with us. John, thank you so much for joining us here on Resources Radio. It's nice to talk to you. Great pleasure, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Of course. So there is so much to cover in our conversation today, and I I really do want to get right to the meat of it. But I want to quickly start with our usual introductions and ask you to tell us just a little bit more about your own background and how you started working on on surveys and particularly those related to climate change. Well, my Ph.D. is in social psychology from the University of Michigan. And when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I worked with a social psychologist there, Chick Judd, who was very interested in applying theories of attitude formation and change to study politics. And so when I went to graduate school, I continued to learn and develop skills and an understanding of the literature in that arena and took a faculty position at Ohio State University. And a few years after I got there, uh, I got a a phone call um, from uh, a group in Boston, Industrial Economics, inviting me to come to a conference that they were holding on uh, global warming. And I, I said, what's that? I, I literally didn't mm. know what it was. Uh, and I think this might have been about 1994. And so the, um, they said, you know, don't worry. We'll, once you get here, we'll tell you about it. And um, so it was a group of about 20 social scientists who had been invited. And the first half a day was... Uh, tutoring by an MIT climate scientist, um, teaching us about what had been happening to the Earth's climate. And it ended up that the purpose of the discussion was to find out people's thoughts about how to understand the American public's potential reactions to this issue and to offer some research money to investigate it. And so at the end of the of the two days of meetings, um, we were all asked, you know, would anybody like to take some money to study climate change mm-hmm. opinions? And so I put up my hand, and Danny Kahneman, who eventually won the Nobel Prize in economics, also put up his hand. And so the two of us then kind of went off in our in our own directions studying this. 
And um, for me, once I started to do national surveys, uh, I was flabbergasted by the fact that the American public was way ahead of me on this issue, that I hadn't heard about it, but many other people had and had formulated opinions that were intriguing and surprising in light of the public opinion research in political science and psychology. So I was pretty quickly addicted, and uh, I think we've done more than 25 expensive national surveys mm -hmm. over the last 25 years on the topic. And I feel very privileged in doing this work to have been partnering with Ray Kopp and Resources for the Future all along. You all have made the work better, and I'm very delighted that uh, we have another opportunity today to unveil the new collaboration that we've put together. That's great. Yeah, so we are here today to talk primarily about the 2020 Climate Insights Survey. I know that's had other names over the years. Uh, you told us a little bit about how kind of the, the genesis of, of your thinking about survey and surveys on climate change. But I'm curious about this one in particular and how the process of putting it together, how that's changed over the years in which you've been undertaking this effort. Well, the process of being a long-term survey researcher has an interesting set of uh, dilemmas built into it. Um, when you design the first survey, you're just thinking about that one. You're not thinking, gee, I'm probably going to do 24 more of these over the next 25 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're just taking it one step at a time. And for us, what we were interested in was, number one, learning what natural scientists believed about climate change at that time in the mid-1990s and then gauging what Americans' opinions were on those very same issues. Really, essentially, we were finding out the degree to which Americans were kind of on the same page with the natural scientists. And even though natural science expertise and knowledge has grown since 1995, as we've seen in, for example, the IPCC reports that have been evolving over time, maturing, getting richer and more detailed, the truth is that climate scientists, even in the 1990s, believed pretty much what they believe now about the basics of this issue. And what surprised me in the beginning was that Americans were, in large margin, on the same page with those climate science experts. And so uh, designing each subsequent survey involved really two sets of decisions. Number one, we had to decide which of the prior measures that we had asked in the original survey were we going to repeat now. Uh, because obviously one of the great values of, of any long-term research program is to study how public opinion changes. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition, we are always trying to think about what kinds of new perspectives we can take on the issue, what mm -hmm. kinds of new, new questions we can ask, new types of opinions we can explore. And there's always a tension because you have a certain amount of money and each dollar is going to be spent on another question being asked of another respondent. So you kind of have a fixed budget and you can only interview so many people and you can only ask them so many questions. And the more old questions you repeat, the fewer new questions you can invent and ask. Uh, but we were very lucky with this new survey to go into partnership with ReconMR, which is the survey interviewing firm that did the telephone calls for us. Um, this survey, by the way, is state-of-the-art, random digital telephone interviewing with a random sample of American adults, uh, landlines and cell phones, human interviewers, and uh, those, uh, uh, all of that um, data collection process uh, is a very complex one with carefully monitored and trained interviewers. And ReconMR came to the table uh, providing great expertise, uh, but they also decided to be very generous, to join us as a partner and to allow us to lengthen the questionnaire more than might otherwise have been the case. And so that allowed this particular survey to be the longest one we've ever done to go into more depth 
and to explore more options, more issues, more perspectives, more questions than we ever have before. Mm, that's great. So what, what new questions did you add for 2020? And I think one of the most intriguing topics is why those things? You know, there are so many questions you could have added. Um, but how did you use that additional but still limited space for new questions? And, and why those particular topics? Great. Well, one um, interesting direction in this particular study came from our collaboration with the New York Times. We've been in close contact with their climate experts and have evolved this questionnaire partly in collaboration with them. And uh, one of the uh, interesting directions for their coverage of climate in recent months has been a focus on very substantial change in federal government policy with regard to emissions. That in various ways, uh, through a combination of executive orders from the White House and from policy changes in EPA and NOAA, there have been a variety of different types of scaling back of government restrictions on emissions, uh, on the use of uh, fossil fuels such as coal for electricity generation and so on, that um, this administration has been clear in its support for traditional forms of energy generation. And that's interesting because in one of our recent surveys, I think it was 2015 maybe, we asked respondents a very simple set of questions. We said, okay, we're going to describe to you a series of different ways that electricity can be made. And for each one, please tell me whether you think it's generally a good idea, bad idea, or neither good nor bad. And what we found was really quite striking, that uh, something like 90% of Americans said they thought using coal to make electricity was a bad idea, and something like 90% of Americans said they thought uh, making electricity from sunlight was a good idea. And uh, what you could see is that there was a kind of gradient of uh, positive opinions moving from the greenest and most renewable, being sunlight, to uh, coal that was perceived as perhaps the lowest in cost, but nonetheless the, the most damaging to the environment. And so with that in mind, it's interesting that uh, recent government policy and lots of news coverage in the Times has focused on this administration's decision to move more in the direction of what Americans might think of as um, more electricity generation from what they would call bad sources. So we asked a series of questions about Americans' opinions on those policy issues, those very policy issues. Okay. Should the U.S. Uh, back out of the Paris Accord, which is, of course, a voluntary treaty designed to reduce national emissions? Should the government reduce its own emissions over time? That not, not the country's emissions, but the government's emissions. And other questions like that, touching on topics where President Trump has uh, backed out of restrictions that were in place. And we explored Americans' opinions on those issues. Um, we've also looked at a variety of other new perspectives on policy, many of them coming from um, the, the Times coverage of these issues related to climate change. And we're, um, we're going to be releasing the results of those questions slowly over the coming weeks and months. Great. Well, that's a good teaser for our listeners to come back and continue to engage with this. Um, I do want to talk about one of the primary findings that's sort of at the center of this first report that's been released. And uh, of course, this survey is taking place in the middle of a pandemic, um, alongside a racial reckoning in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I think intuitively, one might think that 
this might affect how people think about anything other than the current crises. So, you know, we're really kind of laser focused on these large scale societal issues right now. Um, and maybe that crowds out room to think about things that seem longer term, like climate change. So I want to ask you as a, as a start for talking about the findings, what do we know about whether concern about climate change is a quote unquote luxury good, something that people can only think about when they have sort of mental space to do so? And what did this particular survey tell us about American prioritization of climate change as compared to these other major issues? Well, Kristen, exactly as you described, the literature has in it um, this hypothesis that perhaps environmental concern is a luxury good. And the, the notion here comes partly from uh, Abraham Maslow's uh, theory of motivation in psychology. Many people um, learned about his hierarchy of needs in their introductory psychology classes in college. Mm. Um, what Maslow posited is that um, we are all in the business of need satisfaction. And if you think of those needs as in a pyramid, as is often used to represent his ideas, at the bottom are the very basic needs of survival. So you need um, food and water, you need shelter, you need safety. And the proposal that Maslow made is that until those needs are satisfied, we don't have the flexibility as human beings to pursue higher order needs. Um, and higher order needs might include self-esteem, social connectedness, and social relations. And the proposal here is that once you get past satisfying self-esteem and social relations and connectedness, then you have the luxury of pursuing goals like, for example, um, seeing to it that the planet is taken care of. That only after you're taken care of, says the theory, will you worry about the planet being taken care of. And so in, in the literature on these ideas, there is conflicting evidence. There are some studies that have suggested that people who are suffering economically are particularly likely to reduce the importance that they attach to environmental protection. There are other studies that find exactly the opposite and other studies that have found no relation between economic suffering and the seriousness that people attach to environmental threats or their support for addressing them. So really the literature is mixed and the literature is really filled with what we call observational data. In other words, there are no experiments that, for example, a study might compare 45 countries, some of which are wealthy and some of which aren't, and look at whether they differ in the importance they attach to environmental issues. But the strongest evidence that, of course, we can generate in science is evidence of causality seen from experiments, or in this case, a natural experiment, that as horrible as the virus is, as horrible as the economic crash that America has experienced, as uh, disruptive and powerful as the, uh, the recent uh, concerns about race relations are, that uh, those all happening at once offer us an opportunity to conduct what might be thought of as an interrupted time series design, looking at whether public attitudes about climate change, support for government action, the priority that they attach to all this, might have gone down as a result of all that. In other words, the simple version of this hypothesis is the more people are suffering, the more people are worried about survival, their, their very health uh, under threat from the virus. All of that can be thought of as an intervention designed to allow us to find out, have Americans backed away from this issue? And the hypothesis in its core form is as follows, that when Americans want government to be focused on solving huge problems like the coronavirus, the economic crash, race relations, and so on, 
that maybe people think it's less important to work on environmental problems. Maybe people are less supportive of government action to work on environmental problems. Maybe people are less willing to pay money to solve environmental problems, partly because they simply don't have the money the way they used to. Maybe when people find themselves unable or unwilling to support remediation, maybe they are inclined to deny that there's a problem there in the first place. And the amazing thing that we see in this survey is a resounding no to that question. The answer is that the, all of the disruption in the country that we've seen over the last four to five months has led to no change in the downward direction in anything that we've measured in this survey. In fact, we see record highs in a number of the large majorities we've been watching for quite some time. Absolutely no evidence that Americans can't walk and chew gum at the same time. In other words, that Americans are, of course, deeply, passionately concerned about solving this virus problem, solving the economic crisis, improving race relations in the country. But that means nothing about people walking away from climate change as a problem. We are versatile enough that right now we can think about the virus, and one minute later we can also think about climate change. So the crowding out isn't nearly as dramatic as people might think it is sometimes. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. It's great to talk to a psychologist, too, because it's such a nice perspective to have on these on these issues. Um, so I will note, John, it is almost impossible for us to cover all the findings in this survey simply because there are so many and they are so rich. Um, but I do want to at least offer some highlights and in particular focusing on kind of, again, the general trends information that you've been developing over a number of years. So I'm going to open up the floor essentially and ask you to kind of talk our listeners through what we should know about the findings from from this year's survey as well as how they compare to previous years. I can do that. Um, so let me just hit a few of the high points now um, knowing that um, listeners and uh, interested experts will get regular doses from us over the next weeks and months. We'll be uh, releasing little bits of these findings gradually because there's just so much in the pile right now. But uh, at first, I'm just going to kind of set the stage as follows. Um, A fundamental question that we've asked about over the years has been just simply whether Americans think the planet has been warming or not. And uh, in the new survey in 2020, uh, the answer is that 81% of Americans believe that. Four in five American adults believe that the planet is warmer now than it was 100 years ago. And that number uh, has been remarkably consistent over the last 25 years. In 1997, for example, it was 77%, almost as high as that 81. And so I think it merits just a pause for a moment because we're so inclined to think about this country as divided 50-50 on so many issues. Mm -hmm. Elections are won by tiny margins in some cases. Al Gore in 2000 lost the presidency in Florida by way less than one percentage point. Um, And so the idea that we can agree on anything might seem surprising. And yet here's an issue where we do. 81% of Americans, that's Democrats, independents, and Republicans who agree on that. Um, in addition, um, that when we ask people, do you think the Earth's temperature will go up over the next 100 years if nothing is done to stop it, 76% of Americans said yes to that question. And uh, one of the most striking consistent trends over time, over these years of our doing the survey, is that Americans are now more confident, more certain of their opinions. So back in 1997, 
only 45% of Americans said that they were extremely sure or very sure that the, uh, about whether the planet was warming. And what we see now is that of those people who believe the planet's been warming, 63% of them, uh, just about 20 percentage points more, are in that high certainty group. And that's been a very consistent increase over time. Um, so uh, we're seeing not only that the, the number of Americans who believe in the existence of climate change has remained very high, but their confidence or certainty has gone up a great deal as well. 82% mm -hmm. of people in 2020 believe that that warming is attributable to human action. So that's, again, a huge number. When we ask people uh, whether this will be a threat in the future for the United States, 80% of our respondents said so in 2020. That's almost the same as 83% who said so in 2006 when we first asked this question. Even more, 82% of Americans in 2020 said that this will be a serious problem for the world. Um, so those just give you a couple of um, the fundamental findings. There are many more of those. Um, but the this these kinds of huge majorities actually um, appear in addition in support for some government policies. Uh, maybe the most important statement about policy is that a huge number of Americans support the uh, government's involvement in limiting greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And um, when they express that point of view, they, they back it up by opinions on various specific policies that we'll be talking about in later releases from the survey. Uh, but the, the last finding I'll mention is just one that in, is maybe the most important for this upcoming election, that voting based on climate change happens in a small group of Americans who are the people we call the issue public, the passionate people who wake up every morning, look across the pillow, smile, say, good morning, global warming, another day, another opportunity for me to do something about you. These are people who are literally psychologically married to the issue. And that group in America is bigger than it has ever been in the last 25 years. 25%, one in four Americans, now call this issue extremely personally important to them. That's huge. And that means those people will not only be voting based on the issue, but they'll be giving money to lobbying groups. They will be attending rallies. They'll be making phone calls and sending letters to elected representatives. They'll be reading and learning and talking about the issue. And they are more than 90% on the green side of the issue, meaning they believe it's a problem and it should be addressed. That's an important headline from this survey, that that passionate group has grown dramatically and will be having important impact on this election. That's, that's fascinating. And, and so can you put some numbers on that, John? What kind of growth are we talking about when it comes to issue public, that, that climate change focused issue public? And how does that, uh, how does that percentage or percentage of committed um, passionate voters compared to other kind of issues that we talk about or hear about a lot in the political discussion? Well, in 1997, when we first started measuring issue public membership, we found that only 9% of Americans attached a great deal of personal importance to the issue. Um, that grew to uh, between 15 and 17% or so in uh, the first 10 years of this century. Uh, but the last few surveys have shown the biggest jump. 13% were in the passionate group in 2015. That increased to 20% in 2016. 
in 2018, and now it's at 25%. And that 25% is especially remarkable when I tell you that that issue public is bigger than the issue publics for very long-standing, very controversial and passion-inducing issues in this country, including gun control, capital punishment, women's rights, race relations, and so on. The, the uh, issue publics for those long-standing issues, helping poor people, for example, 21%, gun control, 17%, military spending, 16%, capital punishment, 14%. Each of those issues are uh, typical of issue publics. What's unusual is that climate change would get as big as 25%, and that is, by our standards, huge. That is mm -hmm. one quarter of more than 200 million Americans, so that's more than, than 50 million Americans who are passionate about this issue. That's remarkable. Hmm. Fascinating. John, I feel like we've talked... Um, We've used our conversation um, so far to kind of focus on where things have, have changed um, or solidified. But I guess I want to take a moment to ask you about um, trends that haven't changed all that much over the time that you've been conducting these surveys and what we can learn from that. Because I do feel like that's as interesting a learning in some sense as the things that have in fact changed. So for example, I'm, I'm looking at a set of results uh, related to the percent of Americans who believed that global warming will be a very or somewhat serious problem for the U.S. From the data I have, it looks like this question was, was asked for the first time in 2006. It was asked again this summer. And the, the percentages, which are quite high, as you noted, every, you know, four out of five people um, feel like that is a, you know, it's a very or somewhat serious problem for the U.S., but it really hasn't changed. It hasn't grown substantially between 2006 and 2020. And so I guess my question to you is where there are instances where these trends have been fairly stable, uh, what can we learn from those? And and in particular, um, does that say something? I, I personally feel like climate change is much more in the public dialogue than it was in 2006. And so what does that tell us about the efficacy of the coverage and the education and uh, just the engagement on climate change in general? That's a very big question. Feel free to pick off any part of that that you would like. But what can we learn from what's been stable too? Yeah, a wonderful question that highlights a very important point about the American public. And that is that exactly right, that um, for those listening, if they could see the graph that we're looking at, <clears throat> they would know that the percent of Americans who have said that global warming is a serious problem for the U.S. has remained extraordinarily high and very stable over a time period when literally hundreds of millions of dollars uh, went into lobbying efforts to try to move that number. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of that money was trying to convince Americans to become more concerned about climate change. Some of that money was spent to try to convince Americans to become less motivated and concerned about climate change. In addition, during the time period from 1997 to the present when we've been studying these opinions, lots of other types of events have happened that you might imagine would also change public views. Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and then the, the sequel, An Inconvenient Sequel, came out, highlighting climate science. Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and illustrated the powerful impact that serious storms can have. There have been wildfires across the country. In fact, a wildfire is burning not far from my home today as we speak. Um, there, Hurricane Sandy hit New York City and, and the East Coast in ways that illustrated the dramatic impact that weather can have. 
And many climate scientists believe that all of this and more, as well as coastal flooding and other events that are occurring, will happen more and be more serious as a result of climate change. Um, so how can it be that all of that stuff is happening and yet Americans' opinions are staying so stable over time? And the answer is that actually this stability is a very much core characteristic of American public opinion. That Americans, when they form opinions on publicly discussed issues, are very rarely moving around in response to short-term events. That this kind of stability that we see on this issue is typical of so many issues. Um, Bob Shapiro, a political scientist at Columbia University, published a very important book called The Rational Public, which highlighted this brilliantly. He gathered together a huge number of national surveys done over decades and showed that on many, many issues, issues that we might think of as ones that are susceptible to opinion change, opinion change happens very slowly, if at all. And I'll give you just one illustration of this. Today, most Americans believe that cigarette smoking is dangerous to human health. That number is in excess of 90%. But that number was less than 50% in the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, that how did we get from less than 50% to more than 90%? Well, we got there very, very slowly. And if you look at, at the graphs of how public opinion changed, it was just a little bit each year. Lots of things happened. The Surgeon General issued a report in 1964 from the federal government announcing that cigarette smoking was dangerous. Did Americans all of a sudden wake up, say, oh, I guess the Surgeon General said it, so I should change my opinion? No. People are, for the most part, solidified into their views, and big events have very little impact. We certainly have some exceptions. Uh, gay marriage is one of them. Gay marriage is an issue that was not particularly popular, and then within a few short years, a majority of Americans endorsed that being a legal opportunity. But that's the exception rather than the rule. So really, what we see from the stability that you asked about, Kristen, is that the, uh, the pattern we would expect to see on public opinion on other issues appears here on this issue as well. It's not easy to move people from their points of view. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. And I, I feel like that's a good lead in to our next, um, to my next question for you as well. Uh, I'll see if I can tie them together well. But um, so the, as you mentioned at the outset, the I think there were 999 individuals who were polled in the survey. Is that right? There were. We got very close to 1,000, and then we ran out of time. <laughs> um, so these 999 individuals uh, were Americans, and they were adults. They were of voting age. And so we talked a little bit about... Um, you know, the, the interplay between these issues and voting behavior in particular. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you what sort of what demand signals or, or voter preferences do the, does this survey demonstrate? Um, we've seen some stability. We've seen that, you know, we just talked about sometimes the pace of change on some of these voter preferences is very slow. But what other key takeaways could the the survey results provide for candidates who are running for office, for people who are trying to develop policy platforms to address climate change? What kind of the decision maker take away from this? Uh, well, two things. First of all, um, it's certainly true that the issue public, as I've said, those are the people who will vote based on this issue, and they are overwhelmingly what I would call green on the issue. They are overwhelmingly people who believe in the existence and threat of climate change. So uh, just if we just stop there, among the 25% of people who can be wooed, um, that candidates would be wise to uh, express opinions that are consistent with their preferences and, uh, and to avoid expressing opinions that are inconsistent with their preferences. Um, and so anything candidates can say um, to emphasize their commitment to 
views that Americans share um, will bring votes from these issue public members who listen carefully. You might think that issue public members would know that in general they can count on Democratic candidates to pursue a green agenda when they're in office and they can count on Republican candidates to oppose a green agenda in, when they're in office, but that's not how issue public members think. They listen carefully to what the candidates say and candidates can definitely disappoint issue public members by failing to talk about their issue or by talking about it in a way that lacks what they consider the passion that's needed, mm. uh, the commitment that's needed. And so Taking green positions by candidates will win them votes. Um, taking uh, skeptical positions will cost them votes. And we actually have evidence from this survey, which we will be releasing on exactly that point coming up. So in the coming weeks and months, we'll share more of that. But for now, what I can tell you based on the results we are releasing is that the issue public are the voters. They are overwhelmingly green. Candidates really ought to take green positions if they want to win votes on this issue. Hmm. Interesting. So maybe one final substantive question for you, John, before we move to our regular closing feature. But um, what finding or, or group of findings would you say most surprised you from this year's survey results? Well, you know, for me, I, I walked into this survey humble because I knew that this was really an unprecedented moment in history. That for me personally, I haven't experienced the, a combination of um, the, the protests about race simultaneous with um, the, the dramatic concerns about policing, simultaneously with an economic crash, simultaneously with a major threat to human health, simultaneously with governors shutting down economies in the country. So much going on that it, it, even if there is not an inevitable trade-off between protecting the economy and protecting the environment. I sure thought that the shock here was, was big enough that perhaps Americans, even Americans who had been uh, believers in the existence and threat of climate change, might have downplayed their judgments of the priority of all of that. And so the biggest surprise for me is just how tenacious these opinions are, how in the face of what economists would call such a big shock to the system, that we see really no changes. I, I might even have bet money in advance that we would see bigger <laughs> changes. Uh, and in this case, we see essentially mm -hmm. nothing other than movement in maybe the opposite direction of what I would have expected. So I, I, I'm certainly uh, the last person you should ask to make predictions about the future. <laughs> and my surprise um, in this case is because uh, you know I, that's not something I can do. Mm. Interesting. Well, again, I would really encourage our, our listeners to continue to uh, look out for future uh, announcements about findings, but also to check out the web tool, because I think it is really helpful to see some of these things in graphic form and just kind of understand um, the directionality and the stability and all these issues that we've been talking about. So, John, I really just want to thank you for uh, for sharing all that with us. It's really good to hear it from the survey designer himself and, and someone who's been so embedded in this world for, for many years. Well, Kristen, it's wonderful to talk with you in particular. I've really enjoyed it, but I also really am so grateful to RFF for for existing and for doing the great work that it does <laughs> and for including me under the umbrella. I'm just very of grateful. Of course. 
it is really our pleasure. I am also grateful to RFF for existing. So that we are alike in that. That's there for we sure. go. Yep. Um, so John, let's close with our regular feature called Top of the Stack. Uh, I'm, I would love to ask you for your recommendation on more good content. Again, all content types are welcome. Book, article, podcast. Um, what's your recommendation for our listeners? What's on the top of your stack? I think if your listeners today are intrigued by what they've heard and they would like to be further enlightened about how to think maybe differently and more deeply about the American public and about its uh, opinions on politics and its involvement in politics, I'm going to recommend a book to you. It's written by Professor Arthur Lupia, L-U-P-I-A, who's at the University of Michigan, usually, although right now he's directing social behavioral and economic sciences at the National Science Foundation with you in Washington. And the book is called Uninformed. Um, and it's a, a, a remarkable treatise that gives you insight into the psychological perspectives, political science perspectives, economic perspectives on the question of whether Americans actually know enough to keep the democracy boat floating and directed in good ways. Uh, it's an intriguing and powerful treatise, and I would encourage people to take a look. Well, that is wonderful. We will include a link to that on the RFF page associated with this podcast recording, too, so our readers can have easy access to it. So, John, thank you again. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through all of this with us. I'm sure, as you noted, people will see your name coming up more frequently as we continue to release these findings. But thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for doing it, Kristen. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.